You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. And so we've been walking through the seventh book of the Bible, that is the book of Judges. We're in the 11th chapter in the book of Judges. The word judge here is, is not necessarily a, a, a title of someone who simply mediates disputes within a group of people, but instead is a deliverer who mediates disputes between God's people and the nations. And so the seventh book of the Bible we find ourselves in is, is a group of people who have received God's promised land. They've been delivered from Exodus. They've been given the promise of a new place. They've, given, they've been given the law throughout Exodus all the way to Deuteronomy and Leviticus, how they ought to live. And then as they conquer the land and are recipients of that gift in the book of Joshua, immediately preceding it, we find ourselves in Judges where the second generation of people begin to inhabit the land. So the book of Judges is basically what it looks like to be living amongst idols or people who worship things other than the Lord and God of the Bible, in which case people will do whatever seems right. The very last verse in the book of Judges is the climax that explains the whole thing we're working towards. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did whatever was right in their own eyes. That is that to live amongst idols is, is to live amongst a people and be encouraged to do whatever you think is right. And we come to find out that this is in fact an appetizer. This is in fact a pointer. Each of these judges is an episode. An episode that points beyond itself. Now I say appetizer, right? Now this hopefully is an analogy I use regularly that, that as an appetizer... Uh, it, you're not supposed to gorge yourself or fill up on it. Shame on you this week, right? Not really. Enjoy the bounty, right? But when I go to a place like that serves chips and salsa, which I believe is evidence of God's goodness, but also an idol. When I go to a place like that, so, you know, chips and salsa or breadsticks or, or some sort of bread or some, some good carbohydrate, right? No, I apologize to all the people who who are unable to enjoy and imbibe and those kind of things. But, but I tend to, instead of just enjoying it as a precursor and a preview to the meal that is to come, I fill up on it. I just, I get so, it doesn't matter. Like, at that point, they're like, yeah, your meal's here. Who cares? It doesn't matter. I've already eaten too much. And so when I say appetizer, I'm afraid you might think like I do and think, oh, it's the thing you fill up on. But, but as an appetizer is designed by a good chef, it's supposed to be just good enough that you are deeply deeply unsatisfied. You take a, a taste, it's just savory enough to leave you hungering for more. And the book of Judges is a series of episodes, episodes that are for us appetizers. They're precursors. They're signposts that are meant to whet our appetite for the king and ruler that God will send. Because apart from that king and godly leader that God will send, we're lost. So beginning in verse 11, excuse me, chapter 11 and verse 1, we find the verses just preceding this that have introduced us to the next person who will deliver God's people. You can see in verse 17 of, of the previous chapter, and the Ammonites were called to arms, they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Did you hear that? It's like the appetizer. Oh, this is, okay, we got a problem. What's next? And beginning in verse 1, we'll read the entirety of chapter 11 and chapter 12. It'll be about an eight-minute read. So hang with me. I want to stretch your attention span for the reading of the Bible and the teaching of the Bible. So hang with me. It's okay if you space out just a little bit. Pay attention to what draws you back. Beginning in verse 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. 
And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tov. And they said to Jephthah, Come, be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now that you may go out with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now therefore restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and the Aror and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of Ammonites, of the Ammonites, did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from the Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel-Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. And behold, His daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. 
Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed the Zephon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. The men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, Then say Shibboleth. And they said, or and he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in in Gilead. After him, Ibzon of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons, and he judged Israel seven years. Then Ebzon died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Aijalon and in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. And he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. This really is God's Word. We're invited in the book of Judges to gaze into the depths of sin and lament. We are invited into an intentional sorrow over sin and the brokenness that always results. We're invited to look at this, and so I I want to warn you, we're invited to deep sorrow and deep sadness. I'm not ashamed of inviting you into that, because in in some senses, I I want you to despair of the things we see here, and even despair of the things in your own life, and despair of these things so that you might find a deeper and more eternal joy. And so what we find in these two chapters, I don't know if you caught that, Israel's Canaanite character is set. Remember, they're meant to live amongst the idol worshipers, people who worshiped and trust in lesser 
things. And they were meant to live in a certain way that testified to their loyalty to the covenant promise-keeping God. But what we find here in this downward spiral towards the climax at the end of the book, in which case people did whatever they want because there was no godly king in Israel, Israel just looks like the Canaanites. They start doing things that the Canaanites would do, and from here on out, it's downhill. Retribution. Not kingship, and not God's, uh, not, not God's bringing about of, of certain better outcomes. It's retribution and vengeance that drives the narrative from here on out. And the only ways we begin to see God, and they, begin, they get more and more unclear, are in the cycle. The cycle of repeated rebellion and idolatry and God bringing about their salvation. So what's the point of this episode about Jephthah? They are utterly canonized. They look like the rest of the world. They do not stand out amongst anyone else. They look like all the other idol worshipers, even in the worst possible way. Child sacrifice. And then lastly, you saw in chapter 12, violence against their own people. So I want to walk you through this. But what you're meant to see here is the recurring theme of Jephthah's leadership as, as, a, as a judge that God anoints is that Jephthah's a talker. Jephthah is a negotiator. He is a deal maker. And I think we see multiple different deals that he strikes up. While all of these other judges right, are, are empowered, empowered and anointed with certain gifts and abilities that the Lord blesses to do amazing things, it evidently, what we see here is that Jephthah's a pretty mighty warrior, but he seems to think that his real move is to negotiate, to talk his way through it. He is all about words. He sees the power of words, and he uses them to his advantage. Now, this is not new. The very first verse in the Bible is that God brought about all things with the power of what? His word. In the beginning, God spoke, and the speaking of God is enough to bring things into existence. So we, we see an Old and New Testament conviction that, that words really do have the power to bring life and give life or to take it away. And he's all about the words. In many ways, the book of Judges is also a case study in leadership. Not the kind of leadership that's a buzzword in, in corporate culture at the moment, but like, what does it really mean to be a godly leader? And one of the first things you see here is the absence of things we've seen in the past. Namely, who brought Jephthah into power? Whose idea was it, right? Now, up to this point, we've seen that God would raise up a leader. God would raise up Othniel or Ehud, right? But notice what we learn in this particular downward spiral in this episode. Leadership is not a matter of power, but rather a call to service on behalf of those led. Leadership is not about power, influence, power and influence. The distinctly Christian conviction about leadership and godly leadership is that it's about service. It's about responding to a call. Now, there's a sense in which this, this begins to undermine even what we understand as a volunteer. Right, like a, in the world, a volunteer is someone who, like, it's their idea and, and by their own volition, their own will, they, they do something. But, but the distinctly Christian conviction is that a volunteer is simply responding to God's call. They're just saying, God has laid out the need, God has set out the path, and I will respond to Him. But did you catch the distinct absence of the language or the name of the Lord that began this story? Jephthah was a great warrior. But he was an outcast. He was an outcast from a broken family. Now remember, one of the things that the book of Judges is a reflection on what happens when faith in a covenant and promise-keeping God does not get passed on to the next generation. And we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 7, a preparation for what these people ought to look like living amongst idols. That, that, uh, that God's ways, His 
order, His law, His statutes and principles are not simply meant to be something that we like tell someone or tell children what to do. It's something we meditate on and talk about and murmur about every single moment. And as we saw this in chapters preceding, like, look, this is powerful. Look, your kids do not need the talk. They need thousands of them. You want to guarantee that your children won't listen to you? Boil all your wisdom into the talk. And they'll be like, oh, this is the thing we obviously don't talk about. This, is, this thing is obviously unimportant, and we avoid it in our household. And what does Deuteronomy 6 and 7 tell us? It says that no, the statutes of the Lord, the story of his deliverance is meant to be the story we tell all the time. And households are marked by marking it on their doorposts, making it as frontlets on their eyes. You talk about it when you eat, you talk about it when you go to sleep, you talk about it when you wake up. Thousands of talks. And the thing that's the most true about you is the thing that you commit to all the time, the thing that you would never skip out on. And the book of Judges is a reflection on what happens when that is not present. This is a case study on family brokenness. Did you catch that? Turns out that Jephthah was the son of a prostitute. Apparently, I don't know what you had to deal with this last week across the Thanksgiving table, but, but Jephthah's own story of origin was when, when, apparently when dad, like when that thing that was supposed to stay in Vegas didn't stay in Vegas. Did you catch that? And so there was a story of great shame for these people, so much that they saw him as a completely illegitimate family member. They saw him, no, you're not one of us. And then they kicked him out. Let this be another lesson. The family is the first place where sin and idolatry causes destruction. Isn't that the first story of the Bible? Adam and Eve, shameless together. And as soon as sin enters in, what? The curse, the curse enters. Like, this man is going to try to bully and lord over this woman, and, and this woman is going to try to domineer and get underneath. Right? There's going to be brokenness, and the first place that sin shows its nasty head is where? In the family, and you see that here. And so Jephthah is, in many ways, a victim of circumstances outside of his control, and he's the, he begins to experience the fruit of sinfulness in the most intimate place, namely, where I know some of you are keenly aware of, family. So they, now we're introduced to deal number one. The leaders of Gilead, who had cast him out, seen him as illegitimate, said, hey, this warlord, right, this, he's like a mobster, right? Like he's, did you catch that? He's, he's out living in Tove. We don't know what that place is like, but apparently there's a bunch of worthless fellows, outcasts there as well, and they start to collect around Jephthah. And what happens is like he's like a part of a crime ring of some sort. Now, this is the second time we've seen this. This picture of worthless fellows, it is a, a back, uh, it's like a callback to who, right? Abimelech, the other self-made king, who is also the fruit of his father Gideon's idolatry. So here we see again, like there's, he's out, he's an outcast, but then they come, and the first deal we're introduced to is laid on the table. They come back, to the, the leaders of the Gileadites, and he said, hey, Jephthah, we really want you to help us really need you to help us out. And of course, he sees right through it. And he says like, look, you were the ones who kicked me out. But notice what happens. The way they see leadership is something they can use. They simply see power and influence as a tool or a device to be used. And so they recognize another axiom of leadership. You can't have a rescuer without also having a ruler. I want you to hear the echoes, right? You see, you taste this appetizer. <laughs> this is what Christians would say uh, in, with conviction that Jesus is what? Our Savior and Lord. And so if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, you're not yet a believer or a disciple of Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so, I want to invite you to consider what it is that we believe, what it is that we really celebrate, what it is that we remind one another of and gather around every single week. And it's tempting to say, I have problems, I need someone to get me out. But notice, this axiom shows up even in the New Testament. You can't have a rescuer with also having, having a ruler. And it's very tempting to want a Savior, and especially to love the, the fact that Jesus is Savior. But it's always, whenever you emphasize that point, it's always to the detriment of seeing Him as Lord. And the only reason that He can save you is that He has power over the thing that holds you captive. 
And that means for Christians, and especially if you're like entertaining the possibility of what it means to believe in Jesus, it's, it's to give up. To cry out for help is to give up your ability. To, it's, to, it's to abandon your own ability to save yourself. And so don't miss this. There's an echo here, an appetizer here of Jesus, but he's not just this nice, sweet guy who gets you out of trouble. He's not a gumball machine that somehow, somehow responds to your whims. He is Lord. He is God. He, in, in the flesh, has authority over all things. The only way he can save you is his ability to have power and authority of the thing that holds you captive. Look at how this first deal goes. It's marked by them using him to get what they want. They see the power of Gideon. Oh, excuse me, <laughs> all the names are going to run. They're going to get worse. I'm going to get them all mixed up. They have Amorites and Ammonites in this one chapter. Just trust. I, I, I think I knew what I meant when I said the right or wrong one, but just trust me, show me some grace. But so, so we see here this Jephthah, the Gileadite, is seen by the leaders of Gilead as just someone they can use. They see power and authority as something they can abuse and use to get what they want. Now remember that, that will show up later. They use power to get what they want. And they wheel and deal with it. But notice what Jephthah does. He starts the deal, and then he just brings in, and the one of many times in this chapter, he brings in the name of the Lord. It isn't the Lord that speaks. In fact, there's only one place in this chapter where the Lord seems to be doing anything of the Lord's own will, and that's in verse 29, that the Spirit of the Lord is on Jephthah to deliver the Lord's people. But the rest of the time that the Lord, and the, the, you see the all-caps name, the name of God is invoked here, it's invoked by Jephthah. And guess what he is using, or guess what he does with the powerful and strong name of the Lord? He uses it. Notice he invokes the Lord here in verse 11. And he went to the elders of Gilead, made the deal, and the people made him head and leader over them. And listen to the way it's explained. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Notice what wasn't said. The Lord spoke all these words to Jephthah. No, it was who doing the talking. Notice that whenever we are doing the talking before the Lord and not the listening, there is a deep problem. Did you catch this? The Lord, sovereign creator of the universe, is now basically a name that Jephthah can drop. And instead of the Lord's words speaking over Jephthah, what happens? Jephthah speaks his word as though they have authority. But even notice it, it's at Mizpah. That's his place, right? Now we know this from the book of Joshua, the place you would, if you were going to make a deal before the Lord, you would go to Shiloh. That's not where we are here. We, again, we're meant to see here, these people just look like all the other pagans. And so he speaks these words. And then what happens after this deal number two? Catch that? Then, verse 12, and, and there's a very long, drawn-out deal. Did you catch that? It has at least three different parts. He starts to make a deal with the enemy, the Ammonites. But notice what he does as he strikes this deal. He, he invokes a few different things. He, he, he responds to, or he like kind of makes a case about the history of the people. He, he then invokes the name of the Lord. like He invokes theological terms to justify his position. And then he, he kind of makes this claim of uh, invoking God's final arbitration over the winner. Just catch what he does. He doesn't go in fighting. It's probably more likely that instead of fighting like he agreed to, he was trying to avoid the conflict. And this ought to be something profound for some of you who avoid conflict. What did he do? He tried to talk his way out of it. But notice, when he invoked, in this, there's a messengers being sent. Did you catch that? And he kind of gives a, a muddled history of Israel coming into the promised land as if to say, look, no, 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 we, we weren't trying to fight you. The Lord's given us the land, and, and if your God gives you that land, you should keep it. But if our God gives us this land, then we get to keep it. But notice, he uses the name of the Lord again in this deal-making 
selectively. He's the one making the deal and he's using God's name however he sees fit. Notice what this means and what it reveals about him and points to for us. Quoting the Lord when it suits us reveals who we really think is Lord. I say this all the time. Cite your sources. People, people cite and quote their authoritative text all the time. right? They state these very powerful axioms that evidently in our culture you're meant to just go like, oh yeah, obviously that's true. Right? right? Have you heard these? Right? YOLO. You only live one. Like that's, and and it's, it's cited like it's a, like a sacred text. YOLO. Like, hey, why'd you do that? YOLO. I mean like, what? Where'd that come? Who, where'd that come from? But don't miss, we cite authoritative texts. And how we cite that authority shows us what we believe about and who we believe is Lord in our own lives. And so he cites the Lord very selectively, doesn't he? He cites the Lord very selectively whenever it suits him. And it shows and reveals who he really think is Lord. Don't miss that. One of the most powerful, one of the most powerful things we see emerging and exposed from Jephthah is what I would just simply call self-reliance. His idol, his control and power. And it's made evident in his self-reliance. And when you're the center of the story, everyone else is a prop in your play. And people aren't like wise counselors, they're things you use. God isn't magnificent, mighty, and sovereign. He's a prop in your play. And one of the evidences, did you catch it? Jephthah speaks of the Lord however it suits him. So much so that you begin to wonder, who really is Lord here? Who does Jephthah really think is in charge? Who does Jephthah submit to? What does Jephthah find to be authoritative? himself, which is right in line with what we've been seeing, right? Which makes him do whatever is right in whose eyes? The Lord's eyes. But who's the Lord in his life? Himself. Here's the tricky part. After this long, <laughs> verse 28 is a, a pretty cool anticlimax, isn't it? All this negotiating, this is painful for those of you who do tend to talk your way out of problems. All this negotiating, but look, look what happens in verse 28. But the king of Am, the Ammonites, what? Did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. That hurts. <laughs> That's a great speech. Wait, I, I don't care. I'm not even listening. But then something powerful we see introduced here in the midst of sorrow and grief, and we'll finish on it. Verse 29. The Lord anoints and empowers sinful and flawed people because that is all there are. Look, this is the tough part of the book of Judges. Living amongst idols leaves you wondering who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. But remember what I told you. That's an intentionally provocative thesis of the author of Judges that for us in contemporary, I would say in contemporary culture to attack what I would call moralism. Moralism. The belief that you can be good or bad. That really the hero of the story is the good people. And that you can, by your own works, become good. But the book of Judges is very clear. The only good person, the only hero in the text is God. That's it. But living amongst idols, it's really hard to tell anything else. Don't you resonate with that? The Lord anointed and blessed Jephthah. And then we find out simultaneously as he was making a deal with the Ammonites, did you see who else he was making a deal with? You see who else he was negotiating with? God. Listen to the language he even uses. He's anointed, God uses him. Now, now again, this is meant to be, on one hand, I think, fairly terrifying when we see leaders, people with authority and influence, who abuse that and harm people with it, we're not meant to be shocked, but we are invited to lament and mourn. Because in a broken, fallen world, marred by sin, living amongst idols, that's just what we have. Now, I wish verse 29 was not there. I wish this was a very cut and dry, you know what, Jephthah's a complete loser. 
Jephthah's a complete idiot, and the Lord did not use or bless him because he's a complete idiot. But instead, evidently the Spirit of the Lord does work through idiots like Jephthah. And so while that in one hand is disconcerting and discouraging, on the other hand, be encouraged. If the Spirit of the Lord doesn't work through idiots like Jephthah, then what are you doing right now? Who do you think you're listening to? And we're meant to realize that outcasts, rejects like Jephthah, who recruit other outcasts, are evidently prime real estate for God to set up shop and be present to bless the people through them. Deal number three. Beginning after we see he apparently is anointed by God to deliver the people, but then simultaneously as he was negotiating with the Ammonites, he was also negotiating with, did you catch that? God. Verse 30, made a vow to the Lord. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in the, in the peace of the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, there are some people who would say he wasn't intending to sacrifice a human. Maybe he was hoping like his, this, like his stray goat, right? Was just, maybe he knew like every time I come home, right, the, the goat's out. We're just filling the blank with, ah, that's not that bad. But, but notice what he says. Whatever comes out of my house, and it uses active language that is always used in the Old Testament to describe a human, to meet me. Whenever this one comes out, to meet me, that, that is when ultimately, oh, that, that's what I'll, I know what I will do. It will come out to meet me, and then I will offer it up for a burnt offering. It seems very clear here. And the Old Testament describes this, right? When David comes back from battle, what happened? The women got together and they, with tambourines, were dancing and they said the, the ominous phrase that, got, that like started, uh, started the war between he and Saul. And they were singing and dancing and saying, King Saul has killed his thousands, but David, and they're dancing and singing, has killed his tens of thousands, right? It's common. It's not the only time where there's a celebration in the Psalms of dancing with tambourines because the victorious king has returned. And who does it? It's often women. It's people. Make no mistake about it. Jephthah sounds exactly like a Canaanite here, willing to sacrifice people, willing to do whatever he wants to get whatever he pleases. He uses what the Lord says against the Lord, even. What does Micah 6 tell us? What does the Lord require? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and, 10, 000, and, or is, and with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Now listen to this. Verse 7 of Micah chapter 6. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. Look, Deuteronomy chapter 12 is very clear on this. When the Lord your God cuts off, or excuse me, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, right? This is this generation living amongst the idol worshipers and you dispossess, you hear the language that he used against him, right? It's meant to be a callback to the promise of God that, that, that Israel would dispossess these people to punish them for their idolatry. What was that idolatry? Verse 30 begins to introduce it to us. Take care that you, do not, that you are not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same. Verse 31, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. This is what the idol worshipers will do. This is what it will mean to displace them, to dispossess them. Because the Lord is bringing about punishment for their idol worship. The Lord, your, excuse me, 
Every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do it. You shall not add to it or take away from it. Sure seems like Jephthah really understood the history of Israel when it suited him to negotiate with the Ammonites, didn't it? Sure seemed real convenient to quote what the Lord would and would not do when it suited his pleasure. But in the end, the way he saw the Lord was like a gumball machine, just like the rest of the Canaanites. In the end, the Lord worships me. The Lord serves me. Did you hear the way he described it? I'm going to make this deal in verse 31. If the Lord gives it into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in the peace of the Ammonites, now listen to this, whatever that thing is shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. I've had people ask, like, like what, you know, you should teach a sermon series on giving or tithing. No. How about I teach you the sovereignty of God? Listen to this. We don't decide what belongs to the Lord. The Lord owns it all. Did you catch what he saw the Lord as? As someone like who would be like, oh, thank you. Thank you, Jephthah. I was wondering where I put that, right? Oh, no, here, Lord, here. This, you can have this. Friend, that's, that's not how we see anything. All we have, all we've been given is a result of God's grace. Every single thing is a gift. You own none of it. And if the Lord desires to take it from you, the Lord will do that. Because that's His sovereign right. He's the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He does not own a thousand cattle. He owns the hills. Get it? It's different. We don't just say, come blessing. We sing, come thou fount of every blessing. Because we don't just want the gifts. We want the Father who's the author and perfecter of our faith and the giver of every perfect gift. We want the dad. We don't just want the trinkets. But look how he sees God. He sees God as someone he can negotiate with. God, I'll give you this. It gets worse. Self-reliance is revealed in shifting the blame, taking no responsibility, being unrepentant and unsympathetic. Did you catch his response in verse 35? He tears his clothes, and look what he does. Alas, my daughter. Whose fault is this? You have brought me very low. And you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Did you you hear the sacred text in his that was like reverberating. I, I said it. I cannot take it back. I'm, I, it's no way that I could be wrong. And look, his self-reliance is revealed in the fact that he starts to blame others. It couldn't possibly be me. It takes no responsibility. It's you. You're the one. You silly daughter who came out to celebrate my victory. You. Think about that. You have brought me very low. But look how unsympathetic he is. He doesn't say, poor you. Like, he doesn't even acknowledge, this is going to hurt you. Did you catch that? This makes me feel really, really bad. Friend, when those words come out of our mouths, it's meant to be a provocative reminder that we've trusted in ourselves and not God. But here's the powerful thing. We will commit our children to that which we worship. We will commit our children to whatever we value and worship. And it's easy to think, well, my idol, my idol worshiping won't harm anyone, but don't miss what we find here. Your false view of God will cost the people you love the most. And he starts to misquote God again. J.I. Packer says it this way, every time we mention God, we become theologians. The only question is whether we are going to be good ones or bad ones. Did you catch that? I made an oath to the Lord. He's doing profound theology. It's just bad. He thinks that his promise is what is powerful. He doesn't realize that we live and die by God's promise. And this is powerful. 
The place where you selectively quote God to justify yourself is the place that will cost the next generation. We'll commit our children to whatever we worship. We'll commit our children to this. This is why idle alert, right? This is why you can't talk about parenting right now without picking a fight, right? You can't talk about homeschool, private school, public school, oh my goodness, classical school, classical, right? Oh, no, 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 no. You, you pagans raising your children that way. This is how holy people, right? And the worst thing you could do is tell someone how to parent. You can't tell, don't tell me how to raise my kid. Please cite your source on that one. Who told, where'd you get that from? You hear it? There's an idol under this, parents. And if you're you're an unmarried person or if you're a person without kids in the room, you're not off the hook. You're just as responsible for raising up the next generation, for modeling what humility before God is to look like. it's It's a team effort. Ask yourself this. What, sh- what decisions do you let children make for you? I want to quote something. Uh, this is going to hurt. I didn't write this. My brother and I were fortunate enough to get to play um, athletics at a pretty high level, and, and in many ways we were kind of leaving that sphere as this was rising. There's a website I want to encourage you to visit called religionofsports.com, co-founded by God himself, Tom Brady. (laughs) I didn't write any of this. Sports aren't like religion. Sports are religion. They provide meaning, purpose, and significance to their participants. From athletes to spectators, coaches to broadcasters to family and friends and fans. If sports are the faith, these are the faithful. And we are its disciples. We are a diverse, forward-thinking collective of filmmakers and podcasters, writers and designers, thinkers and makers who believe in the power of storytelling to show why sports matter so deeply to communities around the world. Our stories, from the premium long-form narrative all the way down to the fuzzy fan-made social media posts, carry the same DNA. Sports are mythic, with epic battles God-like heroes and villains, real-life miracles, and the unshakable, agonizing curses. We believe that the court, the field, the pitch, whatever the competitive arena may be, is a spiritual crucible in which spontaneous human dramas are enacted every single day. We believe these stories contain multitudes of truth and can be artfully mined for profound yet tangible wisdom. We seek to inspire and entertain through vivid, compelling depictions of the spiritual dynamics between sport and human potential. You still think the book of Judges is about some primitive people who worship silly things? You still think the book... Judges is about a group of people who commit their children to primitive and awful things. There's the, here it is, sports matter. Keep the faith. <laughs> Look, that's just one. That's just, like, I, I didn't even, I didn't, the industrial complex that is $17 million a year, the sports, the youth sports complex, right? There are whole of other things that we commit our children to that seem ridiculous, Right? But I want you to see, underneath that, what you will commit your children to reveals what you worship. For Jephthah, it was painful and violent. And we would like to convince ourselves that what we commit our children to doesn't destroy them. It doesn't burn them up. Friend, what do you sacrifice what you value towards? $17 billion a year is more than what consumers put towards the NFL. 
And that's just one. Would you sacrifice your integrity to berate an umpire, a coach, a referee, or a teacher? Would you sacrifice your integrity to post something on social media? You were wishing, man, I wish we had a series on parenting. Well, Judges is that case study on the nature of faith. Whenever it's not passed out, you still want to preach a series on parenting? (laughs) He makes a God that looks like himself. And he lays down his child for sacrifice. Then look what happens. She says, fine. Now, some people would say, like, he was really just committing her to serve in the temple. Well, there's no evidence of that here in the text. That's not the plainest reading, and that doesn't happen anywhere else in the Old Testament. And the way you know this is because she goes to mourn her virginity. Because she, like, mourned, like, like evidently, there was, like, I was going to get married. We were going to have a family. Like, this, this was going to be a big part of who we are. We were going to, hey, Dad, we were going to have, we we're going to have, you're going to have grandkids. And so she had to mourn the loss of all that. Now, she would have not mourned that if she was just going off to serve in, in the temple. She would have time to do that. But then there was a two-month period where Jephthah could have been like, you know what? I was an idiot. I was a complete idiot. But look what that teaches us. Your ability to repent could save your children. (laughs) Your children don't need you to keep your word as much as they need you to keep the Lord's word and repent of everything else. There's two months. You see the, the result? Verse 40. The daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Look, what you worship will, be, will cause effects on the people you love the most. And we'll come back to this. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 12 introduces us to the next series. Not only does he sacrifice his own children, but he stops fighting with the outsiders and he starts fighting with his own family. Ephraim and Manasseh. Did you hear them quoted there? Remember, there were 12 tribes of Israel, but one of, the, one of the tribes was the tribe of Joseph. And Joseph ended up being recognized as kind of two separate tribes that worked together, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, Ephraim was evidently the strongest. And so you hear echoes of Gideon. Remember when Gideon came and the Ephraimites were like, you know, why didn't you... Why didn't you call us to go, to go fight? And, and he negotiated his way out of it. Well, turns out Jephthah has a different way to negotiate. And he, instead of receiving their, their rebuke, right, they call them, they get called fugitives. He's like, oh yeah, we're fugitives. And he goes and fights against them. And then he sets up something really profound. You see, failing to rely upon God results in violent tribalism. He stops fighting the enemies of God and he starts fighting his own people. And that tribalism is powerful, right? He's like, you were fugitives, you're fugitives. And then the way he did it is he like, so, so they sieged all the fords, the river crossings. And they said, if you come across this, you have to say, and if you, if you say you're not an Ephraimite, you have to prove it by a word. Remember the power of words here? It comes back. And if they pronounce shibboleth, so be it. But if they say sibboleth, which is evidently something Ephraimites can't pronounce, then what happened? They slaughtered the person. They start killing their own people. Look, we live in the crossroads of a couple of, of regional cultures like this. I'll give you a couple of words. And in your head, I don't want you to say them out loud. Pronounce this word spelled B-A-G. No. And if, that, if you're confused on that one, just pronounce the word B-A-G-E-L. And you're like, wow, my world's really upside down. What do you call your, uh, your dad's sister or your mom's sister? Get it? That carbonated beverage, what do you call that? Right? Now, that's silly. What if we started killing the people who didn't pronounce it like we did? You get it? You get how canonized this is? You get how violent this idolatry becomes? They start killing their own people. Now, lest you think this is not a big deal, do do you remember what I asked you to remember this last week? Remember what I asked you? There were some numbers I wanted you to remember. How many children did Gideon have? Do you remember? 70, 
Okay? And then after that, there were some no-name, some no-name judges, just like this, a list of no-name judges, and they're, and they're meant to like point to God's normal deliverance. God regularly delivers people through no-names. It's no big deal. But, but after Gideon came Tola. How many children did Tola have? Do you remember that? Zero. But after Tola came Jair. How many did Jair have? 30. Did you catch what happens? You see something powerful. The, the last one is a 70. Did you catch that? He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who what? Rode on 70 donkeys. Let me just see like the progeny of this man is 70. Before that was Elon. Elon, how many? Zero. Before that went Ibzon. And what did Ibzon have? 30 sons. Don't miss this. The story of Jephthah is not an accident. And these common stories around it are meant to point to that. This is what's called a chiastic structure. I'm not trying to nerd out on you. I just want you to see this story of Jephthah sacrificing his daughter is not an accidental story. You're meant to look and think, Gideon had 70 children, Tola zero, Jair and 30, and then Ibzon 30, and then Elon zero and Abdon 70. There must be something significant about the one child that Jephthah had. There must be something to learn about the one child that Jephthah had. You catch that? Maybe the way I would say is this. A man like Jephthah, who was despised and rejected, Rejected, gathered a group of outcasts to save God's people. But that's not the whole story. In the end, as Jephthah's daughter is the one who submits to the Father's will. She's seen as like faithfully devoted to the Father. She's chaste. She dies with her chastity intact. And we come to find out that Jesus, in fact, it's the satisfaction of this awful, dissatisfying appetizer. Jesus was the chaste sacrifice devoted to death by the Father in order not to bring a curse, but to lift a curse from His people and to secure victory over the enemy. Don't miss this. Jephthah's story is not an accident. It is a profound example of what happens when you submit to and trust in lesser things. And you think, man, I really wish there was a better person than Jephthah. I really wish there was something more satisfying than Jephthah. Do you get it? Do you see what this is pointing toward? Look, we sang it just a moment ago. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. What's Israel like? What do we do? We mourn in lonely exile until what? until our true and better judge comes. Don't miss this. What we're called to do in the season of Advent is to find meaning in the waiting. Is to realize that to long for and hunger for, starve for a better deliverer is the posture that we are invited to take. And it's not a waste of time. It is a meaningful posture. It is not an accident. Our anticipating the coming of Jesus is our way of mourning the loss and mourning the pain that's caused. Isn't that profound? What's the prescription for this forgetful people? Did you catch it? To annually remember the depth of an only child. And what are we invited to do? Amidst despair, amidst idolatry, amidst destruction, amidst a mess, we regularly get together to mourn the loss of God's only begotten Son. Not because that's the end of the story, but because God made Him the curse so that we would not be cursed. Not to leave Him there in the grave, but to raise Him victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. Jesus is the true and better outcast who, guess what? gathers other outcasts together. And rather than sending them to slaughter, He takes in the chaste and devoted way the death that we deserved. Jesus is a satisfying, the true and better deliverer. And we're invited to wait and hope. Mourning sin 
but anticipating the peace that will come when he arrives. Let's thank God for this in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you so much for stories like this. God, I confess my own ability to even explain it and put it into words is lacking. Lord, we ask that in a story about words, the word that would ultimately be heard is the word that you speak over us authoritatively. A sovereign king, not who sends his subjects to die, but comes to die in their place. God, thank you that we're invited to enter into a season marked by meaningful waiting. For some of us, might we even now confess our impatience? Lord, we just want you to fix the thing that's broken. Would you come and meet with us in a powerful way and remind us that in spite of suffering, we are invited to have peace here and now because the good and perfect sacrifice, the good and perfect deliverer has come. And he took the curse not as the last and final word, but he took the curse as simply a way to bury it and rise victorious over it. Thank you that he is the means of sure victory over the enemy. Might we respond in worship and adoration and gratitude for that. It's in his name we pray. Amen.